Well, good morning. Let's see, February starts for us uh, a new series called uh, Love Revolution. So if you have a Bible, go with me to the book of Ruth. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth. Ruth is a story, uh, the Old Testament, you know this already, this is one of my favorite books, right? You know this? It's one of my favorite books, so we'll be in this one for at least a month, okay? You're saying, but it's only four pages long. Yeah, I know, at least a month. Because we all love fairy tales, right? Because in a fairy tale, we all fall in love, and we all live happily, say it with me, happily ever after. That's what we really want, isn't it? We all want to live happily ever after. That's all we're looking for. And that's what God wants for us. So he tells us this love story 1,200 years before Jesus even comes. Now, he, Jesus demonstrates his love for us, Romans tells us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ comes for us. That's the ultimate demonstration of God's love for us. But that's not the first time he's telling us he's loving us. 1,200 years before Jesus comes, God the Father is in heaven, Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and they're saying, how can we demonstrate to humankind? And God gives to us this beautiful love story in the midst of a pile of a mess. And in the midst of that, he tells us a little bit about what his love is like and what Christ's love will be like. And he provides a picture in the most amazing kind of real life episode with a real life love story. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to clear your calendar for the month of February and make every effort you can to be here every weekend so you can hear each episode. Because today, I'm going to give you a snapshot of the story, but today we're only going to cover the first chapter. You want to get every nuance of this love story because it gets more beautiful as you see it. Now, before I get too much further, just tell you too, yesterday and Friday night and Saturday, we had the, uh, the Art of Marriage seminar was here. We had a wonderful time. And it was a great uh, conference for married couples, engaged couples, people who are thinking about getting married, thinking about getting engaged. But we have more material that, like that that will be coming out shortly. So just keep attuned. Keep looking at the bulletin. Watch the announcements on the side screens. If you're not signed up for our e-news, get that because we'll let you know. We, what we plan to do is give some follow-up seminars and some small group opportunities, community group things. And then there will also be an opportunity for you to go to school on relationships. And some of you may say, oh, I just need a mentor, we need another couple. We have all that, just keep watching, we'll have that for you. Now, let me give you the story of Ruth in, um, <clears throat> see if I can do it in two minutes, you ready? Can I do it in two minutes? How many would say I can? How many of you know that I'm lying right now? Yes, okay. Two minutes, let me see if I can do this. So there's this couple in Bethlehem. Their names are Elimelech and Naomi, husband and wife. They have two sons. The four of them live in Bethlehem. They own property. They're probably farmers. They have a business. They have, some, they have people of means. And uh, this is happening 1,200 years before Jesus, during the time of the judges. And a famine breaks out in Bethlehem. There's no food. So they decide they're going to move south to a land called Moab. Only rich people can do this. They can pack up their possessions, move south to Moab, which is south and east of Bethlehem. And Moab is a is a place with strange gods, foreign gods, foreign customs, everything, but there's food there. So they move there just in short term. When they get there, Elimelech, the dad, dies. By the way, if we have any Elimelechs here, that's a great name, isn't it? Elimelech, Elimelech. You'll be singing that all day. Thanks for putting that in our heads, Dave. So 
Elimelech dies within the first few verses of the story. And so now there's just Naomi and two sons. The sons marry Moabite women because there's no Hebrew women, no Jewish women left. They're, they're in a foreign country. So they're becoming assimilated to the culture. Okay? After 10 years, those husbands die as well. Mental note to self, guys, don't eat at the restaurants in Moab. Okay? Somehow the ladies survive, but the, uh, the ladies survive, but the guys die. So now you have an older widow, two younger widows, and this older widow is just downright bitter because she's lost her husband and her two sons. She hears the famine is over in Bethlehem. She decides to move back. So they pack up their stuff. They're going to go. And these girls feel a responsibility to go back with Naomi. Some ethical, just some family responsibility. You just feel guilty. It's what, we family, it's what family does, isn't it? We share the guilt. So they, they go back. It's a three-day journey back. Halfway into the journey, Naomi looks at the girls and says, Hey, look, your life is bad. You lost your husband. My life is worse. I lost my husband and my sons. So I'll tell you what. Go back to Moab. Pretend this never happened. Go back and marry. Go back to your mother's house. Marry, have children, have a good life. And find your rest there. Find your happiness there. Well, there's these two women, and one's name is Orpah. The other's name is Ruth. So there's, there's our woman of the day. Well, Orpah goes, okay, I'm out of here. So she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye and leaves. Goes back to Moab. We never hear from her again, ever. Ruth says, no, I'm going to stay with you. I'm going to be faithful to you. Your people will be my people. I'll get along, I promise, even though I'm in a foreign land. And your God will be my God. That's a big jump for her. So Naomi realizes Ruth's not going to back away. So they, they go into Bethlehem, and she arrives, and they say, oh, could this be Naomi? She said, don't call me Naomi. Call me bitter because God has dealt with me in a bitter way. I've lost my husband and my two sons. And they go, but yeah, but who's this girl? Well, she's a Moabite woman. She's a foreigner. And, and now she's part of the family. Well, they don't have any money, so what do they do? Ruth goes out and does a thing called work fair. I call it work fair. It's like welfare. It's income for people who don't have a job. She works the gleaning of a field. That The rules of the day said when you harvest a field, you couldn't back up the oxen. You couldn't a retread a piece of ground. So then you missed a piece, that was left for unemployed people to glean. And that's the way they not only got enough to live on, but it, they had to work to get it. So it was good for their dignity. It was called work fair. So she's out gleaning the field and a studly man on a horse drives by and says, you know, where far art thou? I mean, he, I just know he's, you know, he's good looking, you know, and he, he sees Ruth. How do I know he's good looking? Do you know how I know he's good looking? Because he's filthy rich. That's how I know he's good looking. The more money you have, the better looking you are. So, so Boaz rides by on a horse. He says, who's that woman over there? She's working the field. She's a woman of virtue. She has a good attitude. Who is she? And they all say, uh, she's a Moabite woman, foreigner. And he goes, well, how'd she get here? Well, she married one of Naomi's sons. He goes, you're kidding me. And Boaz goes, I'm related to Naomi. Get out. You ever done that before? I hear, wow, how could this be? You know, and then he realizes she's a near kinsman. So she, and that's what that's called. It's, it's a distant relative, we'd call it. And then he realizes, I could marry her and it wouldn't damage my reputation. In fact, I could buy her out and get her the property and I, I really loved her. So what happens? They, they fall in love. We're not sure who proposes to whom. He proposed to her, she proposed to him. It was a little bit of both. They, they get married and they live happily ever after. Here's the deal. End of the story, 
Boaz and Ruth marry, and they have a son. That son's name is Obed. Obed will grow up. He'll have a son. His son's name is Jesse. Jesse will grow up in the same town of Bethlehem. He will grow up. He will marry. He will have a son who is David. David will be born in Bethlehem. Not just any David. This will be David the king, the best dang king of Israel. And he is also the David who is born in Bethlehem who completes this lineage for the Savior, Jesus Christ. And now you know the rest of the story, if it were. It's kind of a Paul Harvey moment. You realize, oh my goodness, this girl who comes from Moab marries into the family. It's a wonderful love story, and she becomes the great-grandma to the king of Israel, and she becomes a part of the line of Christ. Now, in this story, there are several love things happening. Not only do you have the husband-wife love thing and the children, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, that's beautiful. But it's a great demonstration of God's love and provision for us. Even before we showed up, God gives to us this picture of his redeemer, kinsman, redeemer kind of love. So before Jesus even came, God has been saying, I love you. And then we say, we're outsiders. We're not like the Jewish people who are so religious and so good and so much on the inside. God says, I love you. And we say, we're outsiders. And he says, remember Ruth. She was an outsider. And really, when Jesus died, he didn't die just for his own. He died for the whole world including outsiders like you and me. That's the wonderful, redemptive kind of love we see from the book of Ruth. And it crosses all lines. It is what we sang just a little bit ago. Oh, how he loves us. We can't get it enough. How he loves us so. I mean, it's just incredible, the love that he has for us. And the grace he's demonstrated with this redemptive kind of work in that when Boaz marries her, he not only marries her, he buys her out that's the work of redemption and he gets the inheritance from her lot from the years before this is what we sang amazing grace this is amazing love and that that kind of love that kind of thing only happens because god demonstrates it but it only happens in our lives get this here's the big idea relationships in a human sense don't really work unless you unless you have faith in god You've got to believe God is in this, and you're committed to this to make it work. If you don't have the commitment to make it work, it's not going to work because relationships are hard. They are work. People don't just get lucky. Two teams are going to play in the Super Bowl today. It isn't because they laid around all year. No, they worked hard to get to the point where they are today. And sure, luck plays a little bit of part of that, a little bit, oh, I wish I would. A lot of discipline to get there, and that's the way relationships are. The big idea of the message today is this. Relationships do not work apart from faith and commitment. Faith in God, commitment to the partner, commitment to the relationship. Now, this morning I want to just slice off one bit. It was just chapter one. I'm going to just read it, and then um, I'm going to make some comments along the way. You can take some notes as you like. But the big idea is relationships don't work unless you have this commitment to the Lord God of heaven who made them, and commit to the partner you're with, to the relationship. All right, chapter 1, verse 1. 
In those days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live there for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. His wife's name was Naomi. The names of the two sons are Malon and Kilion. They were Ephraites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and lived there. This reads like a fairy tale, if you'll stop and just pause for a little bit. In those days, it's almost like it's reading once upon a time. It's like a fairy tale. But every fairy tale has a plight, has a problem, doesn't it? The wicked old witch, right? Something bad, yes. And sure enough, it, it's right in the first line. In those days when the judges ruled. That's the wicked old witch right there. This is taking place during the time of the judges. Now you're in Ruth 1, so go back just one page, would you? Go back one page to judges. I don't hear pages flipping. Flip your page. Or at least just, just go like this. Like that with your, your iPhone or whatever it is you do, right? What does the last verse of Judges say? In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. Oh, this is not a good verse. I know it's inspired of God, but do you know what this is saying? In those days, everyone did what they wanted to do. Another version says, in, in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes, this is the equivalent of a middle school cafeteria setting right here. <laughs> this is just people just doing whatever they wanted to do. In other words, this was a nation that, that was heavily steeped, not only in chaos, but abuse and human violations. Sure, there were moments of righteousness, but, but selfish chaos abounded. Even the good judges of the Bible, even the good ones had really bad days. Even the good ones had horrible things about their lives. There were not a lot of great things about the, the period of time in Israel's history. This is a very bleak, dark, depressing time in Israel's history. You read the, the book of Judges, and mostly it's anarchy. And in the midst of it, in the period of the Judges, Ruth just drops in 1,200 years before Jesus. We think during the period of Gideon, who was one of the, the Judges. Drops in right during that, and it's a beautiful love story. And the love story is a light, bright, hopeful. It's like doves flying over the dumpster, okay? It's like doves flying over a trash uh, recycling plant or something. And at least there's just a little bit of beauty there in so much ugliness because there was civil war and strife and division and corruption and bloody civil, just agony all the time. And in the midst of it, you see some beauty and so what happens is, in the opening verses, they leave. They leave Bethlehem. They go to Moab to get some food. But when they go, they go to Moab, which is known for its worship of, of Chemosh, which is a, a kind of a kissing cousin's sister cult to Baal worship. These people threw babies in the river, threw babies in the, in, in the fire, it was a bad, bad religious system, very abusive. And so they were going into a very wicked, anti-life kind of culture. Now verse 3. Now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. This is verse 3, okay? They get right into the plot, right? Husband dies, two sons are left. They married Moabite women. So they, this is, this is going from bad for, to worse for Naomi. Her husband dies. Now her sons are out dating, gallivanting around the countryside with women 
who are very, very foreign to what they're used to. Moabite women, one named Orpah, the other named Ruth. After they lived there for about 10 years, both Malon and Kilion, those are the two husbands, they also died. And Naomi was left without two sons and her husband. You can almost hear the regret in her tone. I lost my husband, I lost my two sons, and I have two foreign women following me around. Uh, This is not a good life. And they had just planned to go to Moab for a while just to get some food. But you know how long they've been there? More than a decade. I mean, they lived there more than a decade. So now, not only are they in Moab, but now Moab is becoming part of them. They're becoming part of the culture there. And so they, when they left Bethlehem, they've been gone so long, people have gone back and taken over their house. There's no property they can call their own anymore. It's gone back to the bank, you know? They, they don't have anything to go back to. They're pretty well bankrupt back in Bethlehem. And now they're in Moab. And I have two foreign women following me around. If you're not depressed, it's only because you don't have a full realization of the situation we're in. And this is a country where they child sacrifice and, and, and uh, idolatry. There was, no, I, there was no ethical line when it came to life. And the, the lesson is that we cannot retreat. You can't retreat to a place without it influencing your faith. And if and if you go to a place where there's bad faith, you can expect that to rub off on you. If You can't expect to go to a culture and not have it affect you some way. So slowly the culture becomes your new norm. And you're in the water and you're beginning to acclimate. Verse 6. When Naomi heard in, in, in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of the people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Three-day trip, okay? Understand, these girls, these young girls, feel some responsibility to take care of this elderly woman now, and they can't just leave her on the road. <laughs> Think about it, they could have. But, you know, have a good trip. The wolves don't get you, the robbers will, you know. Oh, so we have to walk her back. But it's a pleasant walk, because the whole time she's going, I am so disgusted and I have so many regrets. Let me tell you about them. Have you ever said that to a person? Good morning, how are you? And then you regretted that? Like, how are you? Well, my spleen, my liver, I have kidneys. I... Okay, I didn't want an organ recital. I just asked how you are. Some of you will get that later. Some never will. But anyway. These girls feel some responsibility because they feel like the next generation is their responsibility and, and they, there are no men left, which means probably not many babies are on the way. And... And, and they feel that, but they, they want to travel with Naomi. They feel like they at least get her back there. So verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you, to your mother's home. I, thought, I find that interesting. It didn't say father's home, and it's a very patriarchal, very manly culture. She said the mother's home, which I think had to do with building your own home, frankly. Uh, May the Lord show you kindness. Hebrew word here, hesed, which is a, a Big term for the book of Ruth. The kindness of God our Savior is demonstrated. And this is one of the demonstrations of that in a word picture. So may the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. So what this insider, Naomi, is saying is even these outsiders get the kindness that's being demonstrated and they are becoming kind people. That's a huge deal. May the Lord grant you that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. She's saying, just go back, pretend this never happened. Get married, start all over again. Just get in a house and 
and you've been kind to me. I have no regrets. Nothing's your fault. We can't help it that the guys died. This is the kind of demonstration that God has for us and people who get it become kind themselves, which is telling me Orpah and Ruth were starting to get it. And this kindness isn't just for the inside elite, not for just God's inside favored people. This is for all people. And so this kind of, of kindness is, is going to be worldwide. And God will demonstrate his kindness towards us. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that lets us even see Christ. And then she says, may you find rest. You get this in the text? This is a word picture for someone who finally feels at home. They can finally have rest. Have you ever gone in a house where you knew you were not welcome? Three of us. Okay. All right. Have you ever been in a house where they, they make you stay? And they don't let you walk on the carpet. They make you stay on that little liner. Stay here. There, don't get off that. We don't let the dogs off of it either. Yeah. Oh, so I'm with the dogs. Yeah. Sit on this plastic-covered furniture. Yeah. You just don't feel welcome there. Have you ever been in a house when they say, come on in, sit down. I just made fresh coffee. You want some coffee? You, take, you want cream, sugar? What do you want? I've, I got this coffee. I've got some apple pie. It's just going to go to waste if you don't eat it. And coffee goes down better with pie. You say, okay, I'll take it. Well, could you take two slices? I have six left. I'm trying to get rid of them. Okay, I'll take two slices. And as you take the two, they're opening the ice box and they're saying, you know what? I have this vanilla ice cream that's just killer. I mean, it is just, it will, I hate to say it'll shine the pie, but you, you just need a little ice cream on it. And you say, oh, 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 okay, okay, okay. It's already on, so I guess I am having it. And they're just, but you go into their kitchen and you're immediately at home. Have you ever had that? Yeah. And you just, you rest there. You relax there because they just, their house is your house. And they say, oh, the restrooms are around the corner. Just help yourself to whatever. That's rest. You know the difference, right? And that's what they're talking about, where you come at home. And it's kind of the New Testament principle of Christ being at home in your heart. It's where you can get real with Christ because you know, oh, how he loves me. I could be honest with him because he loves me. I can tell him whatever I want to say because he loves me. And that's what we call the kitchen table. That's where you're honest. It's when you're eating and sipping some coffee or some lemonade. It's where you get real. And she's saying, go back to Moab, get a husband, get a home, and find your rest. Find a place where you're really going to relax. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they wept out loud. Can you imagine how agonizing this would be? Because this is their connection to their husband. And they're, if they say goodbye, this is no more. I will never see what the only thing connected to my husband would be. These girls are thinking. So we'll go back to your people. They say, we can't do this. This is agony. It's, just, it's so agonizing. And yet they're on a road trip with a chronic complainer. I mean, a chronic complainer. I know your life's miserable, but mine is worse. Every day they hear that same song. I know you lost your husband. I lost my husband and my sons. Every day they're hearing this. And, and so it's hard for them to bear through this, but this is where we get to the creepy part of the story. Are you ready? And if you don't like this part, you say, oh, there's kids in the room. Well, that's why we have children's programming. Here we go. In Jewish culture, here's what would happen. Um, a couple would have children and probably have a bunch of them. 
six, eight, 10, 12 children. It didn't matter. They just had a lot of children. Uh, one of those guys would grow up and marry. But let's just suppose he gets married, he buys a piece of property, and he starts out farming, and then the ox one day backs up and steps on him and kills him. Okay? Bad, I know. That would happen. That's a farming accident. But he dies, but he's not, he doesn't have children yet. That widow there has that property, but no rights to it, because it's just it's her property, but her husband's dead. So what are they going to do? In walks one of the brothers. Are you ready for this? Dim the lights. Don't, don't. Sleep there. In walks one of the brothers. He will act the part of the husband for a night or two. Sorry if that offends you. His job is to be the sperm donor, if you will, and give to that woman children. But when those children are born, they will take on not the brother's name, but technically the father, who's passed away, been killed already, He'll, they'll take on that family name because they're carrying on the family lineage. So this guy walks in, does the job he's supposed to do, and then he's supposed to go back to his wife. You wonder why we have so many marital issues today. I think it goes back to stuff like that, because that's just crazy, isn't it? We're not practicing that today in America. Amen? <laughs> Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Okay, we got through the hard part now. And if you have questions, last week I picked on Pastor Mike, Kathy Purvis. So this week if you have questions, go to Pastor Ernest. <laughs> He'll explain all that. Okay. All of that explains now verse 11. Because sometimes people read the scripture and go, what are they doing? Well, this is exp- that custom explains it. Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why should you come with me? Am I going to have more sons? That... Now, you know, and my response is not if you're a complaining witch like you are now. <laughs> Probably not. That's why they usually don't ask me those questions. <laughs> Am I going to have more sons who could come be your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. And even if I thought there was still hope for me, she doesn't have any hope even. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? That's what the meaning of that passage because they would be marrying those guys who are yet to be conceived. They were going to be waiting a long time. And would you wait for them to grow up? Would you remain unmarried to them? No, my daughters. It's more bitter for me because the Lord's hands turned against me. It's awful for you, but it's way worse for me. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. So, when all that happens, Orpah kisses her mother-in-law. Verse 14 says, uh, cha-cha, bye-bye. Goes back to Moab. Good luck with this. You know, may the force be with you. And Orpah takes off, says, you're probably right. She goes back to Moab. We never hear from her again. Okay? Don't blame her for leaving. It's not her fault. She did everything right. In fact, Naomi even says that. You did everything right. Everything's good. Go back and start all over again. So that's what Orpah does. You can't blame her for that. But then, look, said Naomi, verse 15. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. That's significant. Her people and her gods. Go back with her. Do you understand how crazy this lady's talking now? This is how out of, how so self-consumed she is. She's saying, go back to your people, which, by the way, God's people are all the people, but go back to your people and to your God. She's sending Ruth back to the land that tortured people, agonized, sodomized, killed babies, played in the fire. She's saying, go back to your gods. 
And Naomi and Ruth says, no, I'm not going to do that. Ruth responds with this kind of commitment and faith, not only in God, but a commitment to the relationship. That's the big idea. Verse 16, Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to go back to stop this. She's saying, stop it. Don't urge me anymore. Where you go, I will go. Where you, you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried, and may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if, if even death separates you and me. She's saying, I am with you. I'm committed to this. When Naomi realized that Ruth was so determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. She just gave up. Because Ruth was committed, your people will be my people. I'm connected to you. I'm not giving up on this. Your God will be my God. I'm buying in on this. I have faith in God. He'll do something. I don't know what that is. You have to have that same kind of faith, folks, in your relationship. You don't know what God's going to do in your relationship. You say, this is just agony. It, yes, and this is about as bad as you can get in Ruth. Ruth forfeits the possibility of rest, of a home, of a husband, of property, of living happily ever after, of holding her own children. She gives all that up to take care of an old cranky lady. But she does so believing that God has something for this. She doesn't know what it is. She has no promise. She has no word from the Lord. No angel appeared to her. Nothing. Verse 19. So the two women went on to Bethlehem. And when they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Oh, yeah, it would be. Yeah, an old lady comes back. We think it's Naomi, but her husband's not with her. Her kids aren't, but she is bringing a foreign woman with her. How do you think that's going to go? Yeah, it's like, guess who's coming home to dinner time? What in the world is going on? You could just imagine this. It's been so long, more than a decade. They're not even sure it's Naomi anymore. Don't call me Naomi, verse 20, she told them. Call me Mara, it's Hebrew for bitter. Because the Almighty has been very bitter, given me a, made me very bitter. She's blaming, who's she blaming? God, the Almighty, has made me bitter. Why? I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, we have the English version of this. And this, this is total, this is the, where we miss it totally because in ancient literature, this actually reads like a poem and there's a play on words and there's some funny, funny moments in this, even in this sadness. There are some turn of phrases that a, a Jew reading the ancient Hebrew would get this, but we don't. Here it is. Bethlehem, she says, I left full in the text. What's the word for Bethlehem? It's the house of, of bread. That's what Bethlehem means, house of bread. And she says, I come back empty. What does Moab mean? Well, we're not exactly sure, but there are people who say it, it means empty or, or it means dumpster. Some people actually have said it's the trash can. And she's saying, I left Bethlehem, the house of bread, and went to the dumpster. And now I'm coming back to the house of bread, empty-handed. And then she says, don't call me Naomi, which is Hebrew for sweetness. Don't call me sweetness, call me bitter. See the flip of words? It's very poetic in its moment. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, according, uh, arriving in Bethlehem, as the barley harvest was beginning. Next week, we'll pick up the story, chapter two. 
Lord willing, but we'll see this story. We'll see a virtuous man of valor, great guy, godly man, and romance will ensue. He'll fall in love and the violins will stir and this courtship will be sweep them both off of their feet and they will live happily ever after. But you know what? None of that is possible. Get this now. None of that is possible if Ruth is not committed to God and committed to the relationship. To a relationship she doesn't even know about yet. Here, here's the deal. She is becoming the woman of God and committed to a relationship, even though she's not in the relationship, and it changes who she is. And when, when Boaz sees that, he goes, that's a woman I'd want to spend the rest of my life with. Before the right person shows up to, to carry us off to a lovely relationship, we have to be the right people. Because if not, we'll mess up the riding off into the sunset. We just will. You will never find Mr. Right until you are Miss Right. You will never find Miss Right until you're Mr. Right. And if you're in a marriage relationship, I just, my word, general word to you is just to stay there and to grow through it and become the right person. Keep, uh, keep the life-giving faith in God and life-giving faith in your partner that God will work in their life. But you know what I found is this. You can't change anybody. You cannot. You write that down all day. You can't change anybody. The only person you could change is yourself. So whether you're, if you're single, be the best you know. But you know why? Because you have to live with you. That's deep, isn't it? But if Mr. or Miss Wright comes, you want to be the right person when they show up because it's too late to grow in, in these great dynamic relationships unless you're the right person already. Now, I need to say too, there are exceptions, but that's what they're called in the Bible, exceptions. They're called exception clauses. You may be in a relationship that you need to get out of, but you're not the one to make that call. That's where the circle of friends called the church can do that for you. When the circle of friends come around you and say, this is not healthy, it's not helping you, and it's quite frankly harmful to you, uh, he's sleeping around, she's on drugs, uh, there's, there's ways to see that there's abandonments happening, immorality is happening, and this is unhealthy for you, this is going to be bad on your life, then you need to retreat, you need to get out of that situation. But you know who's going to tell you that? Your small group, the people you're circle around, people who understand the story. Because you know why? You, you're, you may not be able to see it because you're working so hard at the relationship, you don't see it for what it really is. And this, if this were a story about lust, this is the word picture I give to guys. I never talk to girls about lust, but guys all the time. It's Valentine's, we might as well be honest. When there's a... When there's a match and it comes out of a guy's hand and he's in the woods and it drops and it lights a leaf on fire, what can you do? You just step on it. If you have that amount of lust, just step on it. Okay? Just snuff it out. Don't play with it. Don't uh, see where it goes. Don't see how long it goes before it burns out. It won't. It's a forest. The leaves, got, uh, leaves are all over the ground. You can step on it and snuff the lust out in a moment. If the woods is on fire... Don't think you're going to stop that. That's when it's time to run. And you can pray. Go ahead and pray. But pray while you're running. <laughs> you understand this. There are exceptions. And in a group this large, there might be one, two, three, four, five people who are in that exception clause period. But here's the rule for most of us. 
in the relationships you're in, just stay there. Be the better person. Because the myth is this, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, right? I have a friend, and he has a great lawn. I said, man, your lawn looks great. I was so jealous. I'm always working on my lawn. It's either, either weedy or it's burned up. Or, I, mean, I don't know what happens to my lawn, but it just didn't right. And I, I look at my neighbor's yard, and I say, man, your lawn's, your lawn's so good. He goes, the key is to keep the weeds all the same height. That's what he said. And you know what? He was right. He's right. Because when you fly over houses, you know, have you ever been in an airplane, you're flying over, and you go, my, the people in Iowa sure keep their lawns nice. Well, that's because you're at 20,000 feet. They're, every lawn looks good. Every farm looks good from a distance. When you get up close, then you begin to see and smell things you don't want to see and smell. That's why I love the words of Irma Bombeck, went to heaven just a few years ago, a, a writer, humorist. She wrote, uh, in light of the phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence because you always think it's better over there, distance. She said, no, the grass is always greener over the septic tank. <laughs> think about that. There's a word picture there. Don't want to miss that. I'm done. Here's what I want to say before we close. Ready? I'm done. Here's what I want to say. That was good. American Psychological Association... Uh, not a Christian organization, uh, an association of psychologists, says nationally, uh, and I read their statement, marriage and divorce are both common experiences. In Western cultures, more than 90% of the people will marry by the age of 50. Healthy marriages are good for couples, mental and physical health, so it's good to be married. They're also good for children growing up in a happy home. It protects the children from mental, physical, educational, and social problems. So having a one-woman, one-man relationship in a marriage, monogamous marriage, that's actually a healthy place for kids to grow up. That's what the APA is saying. But they also go on to say that, however, about 40 to 50% of couples in the United States divorce. 40 to 50%. So I flip over to another research piece, which then tells me it's actually, first marriage, it's 41%. Of the, of the marriage's divorce. But you're thinking the grass is greener? 60% of the second marriages fail. 73% of the third marriages fail. It's not going to get better. In fact, you, you will just keep shopping around until you find what you want. And by that time, you're an old person. And we don't call you whatever it is we call you anymore, we will call you Mara, bitter. Because you'll have plowed through relationships, it'll always be someone else's fault, and you'll never really own it. And you know what? The only person you can change is you. So here's my word to you. Become the right person. Be the best you know to be for the glory of God. Trust God, and then work hard at the relationships you're in. Because if you don't, they will self-destruct. And at this point, too, you're saying to yourself, I don't have a model for that. I grew up in a crazy home. Tell that to Ruth. Tell that to Ruth. She, doesn't, she didn't know a good home either. That's where this link to God is so critical. And you could be the difference maker, the change maker for the next generation. Even though you're Mar, you may feel like, oh, I just can't. Yes, you can. And Ruth is proof of that. So that's how we're going to pray today. God, help us to be people committed totally to you 
and, and committed to work at the relationships we're in and to get happy where we are. The grass is what it is. It's because of where I am. And so may I, I work hard at the grass that's around me and not worry about the, the field that's next. Okay? Let's bow for prayer and let's stand as we pray. Now, dear Father, our prayer is that we would be people of great faith in you to do what we can't do in our own strength and to become the people that we could never become on our own. For Father, we, we realize relationships won't work apart from you and apart from us being totally committed to them. So help us. Maybe that's your prayer. God, help me to be committed to the relationship I'm in or help me to be happy in the relationship I'm in or the one I'm not in but would like to be in. And may we see your wonderful, amazing grace and your amazing love as we follow you fully to the glory of Christ, our Savior. We thank you. I pray you'd bless these dear people with a great week ahead. In Jesus' name we pray. The church says, amen.